I'm Andrew Norton, and this is Completely Optional Knowledge. Emily Shore Lesnick is a co-host of a podcast called The Soul Glow Project. It's a comedy podcast about diversity, but I called her at her day job. And when you call her at her day job, you're treated to this very uh, tasteful, jazzy hold music. I like this. Hello? Hey, is this Emily? Yes, it is. I like your uh, hold music. I don't know if you've heard it before. It's, it's pretty jazzy. I've never heard my own hold music. <laughs> it's worth a call. It's worth a call. And of course, I called Emily because she has a question. My question for you is, what's the most surprising partnership between species? Okay, so you have a podcast that's about animals working together, human animals, right? So is that why you're curious? Yes, we celebrate diversity in comedy. So you're talking about all sorts of different types of humans, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, working together to be goofy, to try and make people laugh. Yeah, we, we do have a common goal. That's true. Before we hear the answer, is there anything that we can kind of brainstorm that might be an awesome animal pairing? I'd like to see... Like a horse and a zebra, or are we going to get something that's completely out there? Um, maybe a fish and a bird, you know? What if they actually did work together? Yes, a little sea and air combination. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Is there like a snake and a hawk who have to work together? You know what I mean? Like set aside their differences and, you know, make things happen. Oh, perfection. I love it. That, I mean, I would watch that film. Not even animated, not even narrated. I would just watch it. I'm Andrew Norton, and this is the Completely Optional Knowledge Podcast, brought to you by Greenpeace. Ask, inquire, seek the truth. The show where we take questions that make you go, huh? And we try and make you be like, oh... In the spirit of organisms working together to answer Emily's question, I've got not just one, but two biologists on the line. Michelle Lannon from Deep Springs College and Mary Jane Epps from Mary Baldwin College. And they both study the ways different species help each other out. The technical term for it is mutualism. Let me just throw this out there. Have any scholars in your field just proposed to rename this whole field of study Animal Buddies? One key thing about mutualism is that it's not altruistic behavior, you know. Both parties are out to exploit the other, and it just happens to be good for both. I feel like that's my relationship with my house cats. <laughs> There's so many, you know, children's books or so forth about animals helping each other or the bee helping the flower to be pollinated. And really, you know, the bee, if it can get that pollen in a more efficient way, it'll chew a hole in the back of the flower and just cheat that flower right out of being pollinated. <laughs> Such a romantic image. Without further ado, let's get to our big question. We want to know, what is the most surprising partnership between species? And because we have two answerers, I figured I'd give you both uh, kind of a crack at it. Sounds great. Okay, so in the interest of fairness, why don't you two play rock, paper, scissors over the phone here, okay? And we'll, <laughs> we'll see who goes first, all right? Let's see if we can coordinate this. All right. One, two, three, rock. rock. Michelle, <laughs> you knew I was going to pick rock. One more, one more. One, two, three, rock. Rocks. <laughs> okay, we're going to be doing this all day, I can tell. So does, does one of you just want to volunteer uh, to go first? Sure. <laughs> Break the stalemate. 
you know, there's so many amazing mutualisms. Um, it's hard to pick which is really the weirdest. But one of my personal favorites is the mutualism between various tropical orchids and this group of bees called the orchid bees. So, you know, many orchids actually don't have any sort of reward at all for their pollinators, but instead will mimic the pheromones produced by a receptive female insect. And then some, you know, young, ignorant male bee or wasp will come and actually try to mate with the flower and not get anything in return for the pollination service it's rendering other than some sexual frustration. <laughs> right. But there's a specific group of orchids that have evolved kind of a bizarre twist on that pheromone mimicking. And what they do is, so they have evolved this relationship with this group of bees called the orchid bees or the euglossian bees. And the males are basically fanatical little scent gatherers. So the males go around and collect perfumes. They collect scents from all sorts of different things, not only from these orchids, but also from, you know, fruit and other plants. And they concoct these kind of bouquets of different scents that are specific to that species of bee. And then they use it to impress the girls. So they came back and they say, hey, check this out. You know, I got like some tropical fruit. Yeah, exactly. So the orchids have kind of capitalized on this scent obsession of these male bees and evolved to produce these elaborate scent compounds, right? You know, things that smell like vanilla or cinnamon or even like rotting meat, really stinky stuff. And the bees come in and they go and collect those scents and basically make this special concoction of cologne, basically. Huh. So the orchid bees are grabbing pollen and spreading pollen and what they're getting out of it is a unique smell from the orchid that hopefully impresses females. Is that right? Exactly. It kind of reminds me of when you buy a magazine and you get the free cologne inside, right? Like you get, you, you, like you get oh. a scent, but, but you got to do something, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, I like that. So now we go to Michelle. Michelle, what do you have for us? All right. So I'm going to have to talk about mitochondria. We all know that if you look in the cell, a human has things like a nucleus where the DNA is and some little organelles. And we all learned about the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. But if you look at the mitochondria in the cell, they're kind of weird. They're about three microns in size. So they're about the size of a bacteria. So they're like a little cell inside of the cell in a way. Hmm. And that turns out to be really true in that they have their own separate genome that is separate from the cell genetic material. So they have their own little chromosome. It's a little simple circle. And the mitochondria are passed down from mother to child. So your mitochondria come only from your mother. I suspect it so much. <laughs> so how did cells end up with mitochondria? It was kind of a puzzle, and there were different theories about it. But the best theory that is getting more and more evidence piled up in favor of it is that mitochondria actually started out as separate organisms from the cells they now live inside of. 
So way back in time, probably about one and a half billion years ago, the ancestors of mitochondria probably were free-living little bacteria. And somehow, mitochondria ended up inside of the eukaryotes, and they ended up participating in this sort of partnership. So the prokaryotes could do certain types of metabolic activities that the other cell engulfing them was not capable of doing. But together, they could process food molecules in a new way. So you're telling me that in my cells right now, I have mitochondria, and many, many years ago, those weren't in there. But because of some sort of unique mutualism, they worked their way inside cells. Is that right? Yeah. Your cells are probably a partnership between two different organisms. Wow. So on this podcast, we adhere very strictly to the rules of scientific debate. So now I know you're friends, but I got to give you both the chance to talk shit on each other's argument. <laughs> I think they're both pretty cool. <laughs> come on, come on. I gave you guys a chance to get the gloves off and put yourself ahead and you ended up just agreeing more. So, so I think this is mutualism <laughs> yeah. in effect here. Maybe. <laughs> I feel completely lied to by all children's <laughs> stories and television and movies because I really was hoping for that, you know, um, mammal on mammal kind of thing. <laughs> because I was like, mitochondria, come on. But that is pretty incredible. And the fact that that's happening inside of me and I'm an example of mutualism is affirming, even though I'm kind of disappointed. To me, you know, someone who isn't quite as optimistic, who might not see the world through rose-colored glasses, might look at these instances of mutualism and go, hey, this is just kind of a mutual trickery, you know? Mutual trickery. Isn't that what networking is? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you have a computer in front of you, correct? I do. Type into Google, uh, kitten turtle riding dirty. Please. Oh, my God. If you insist. Oh, my goodness. Have I seen this? This to me is a classic. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is mutualism. Exactly. A kitten on top of a turtle, two chameleonaires riding dirty. You can't beat that. Take that, mitochondria. That's the kind of act that we're looking for. So if you're <laughs> out there and you want to perform on the Soul Globe Project, just try to replicate that. <laughs> Completely Optional Knowledge is presented by Greenpeace. Our producer is J.P. Davidson. Breakmaster Cylinder created our theme music, and I'm Andrew Norton. Visit completelyoptionalknowledge.org to hear more episodes, to subscribe, and to, of course, ask your questions, because we can't make this show unless we know what you're curious about. You can also call 202-697-6912 and leave us a voicemail with your questions or feedback. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with more Completely Optional Knowledge. And hey, do us a favor. If you do subscribe to the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. That would be huge. 